The premise is like real estate is a very fundamental asset for it. It's not like something like technology stocks or something like that, like password, whatever. It's hard to know what the price should be. And so because it's so fundamental, it's pretty easy to detect if it enters like kind of bubble territory and things deviate from those fundamentals. And the simplest approach is the one that I mentioned, which is like affordability pricing income ratio. Then you can go like deeper, I've done it like with different methodologies, with more like regressions against population and housing supply as well. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Stefan Svetkov, and today we're talking about the importance of a data-driven approach in real estate investing. And then we're also digging into some of his analysis regarding what data is important, why it's important, and states that, by his analysis, may be overvalued in their real estate right now, and which ones might be undervalued as well. And also what that means for real estate investors investing in those regions. If they're investing in an overvalued region, what does that mean as far as potential downside risk goes? So it's very complicated. There's a lot of data involved here, and he really digs into the methodologies, the people involved, the level of complexity of the analysis, and so much more. There's a lot of lessons in this one. So definitely tune in. You might need to even listen twice. We do take a quick pause in the interview. He had a visitor at his office. I hope that's not too disruptive for you. But, uh, you know, we just pause the recording and get right back to it. So no big deal. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. People see your reviews and they think, hey, this person learned something. I might learn something too. And you know what? I see your reviews. I see that you're learning from the show. And that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling every single time because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Without any further ado, here we go with Stefan Svetkov. Stefan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Taylor. A pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to talk about a data-driven approach to real estate investing and the way you look at it, getting into market analysis, and so much more. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do, your business, and everything along those lines? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a financial engineer by background. And in the last few years, I've been a real estate investor in the New York City area. So I'm Eastern European originally. I came here about 12 years to stay, like about 12 years ago, like for my master's. Like I studied like financial engineering uh, in New York City. And I've been, I worked in the field. I was a derivatives trader in finance. So I kind of come out of finance background. And I run a company called Realty Quant. So I'm an investor and also entrepreneur, you can say, in the real estate field. Uh, so I run a company called Realty Quant that is focused on data-driven analytics and education, and um, both on the market and property side. Awesome. Great. I love it. And I, I really 
love a data-driven approach when it comes to real estate investing as well. Really doing our best to, to take our emotions out of, the, out of the decisions that we make as, as real estate investors and the markets that we invest in. And that's really what I want to dig into today is you know, data that you look at. And then I know you have some thoughts about markets that you uh, think are overvalued at this point. So let's dive into that. And, and first, at least start with the basics of you know, the types of data that you look at and, and you know, methodologies for collecting that information. Right, right, absolutely. Well, I would say, like, so in, so in real estate, I would say it's a, sort of two main directions. So one is like for finding deals, like properties, kind of properties analysis, and then the other one is well, the market side. And I would say that the properties kind of takes like the most time, maybe like ninety percent of the work. And and just to give like an illustration, and um, like to, for many people, like it's data driven or data driven enough. If let's say you take a Marcus and Millichap report you know, and it gives you like a bunch of charts and a bunch of uh, statistics. And you use that as a kind of user of that, you know, summarized data, call it, and then you apply that it takes certain business decisions. And this can be fine, but I feel like it takes much more intuition and kind of like playing around with the data itself to actually understand, especially on the market side, this, I have found this to be very true. So I always found like if I like took like reports like by other people and it's just like they're super summarized and it would be like kind of essentially very superficial about it and I would not understand what's actually behind it and whether all the dependencies of let's say if you have like 20 hot cities or something to invest in, like what does it really mean? You know, where does it come from? And, and so like it took more the approach, okay, I want to understand the market broadly, have like literally every single county in the country like across like different parameters and so that's kind of what they do. So the source for that is uh, on the market side is just governmental data. So agencies like FHFA, uh, like Federal Housing Finance Agency, uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis, uh, census, you know, perfectly free data available to anyone. So quite easy to do it, I would say in the US for on the market side, and there's plenty of data available. And one can, one can also use like different market, other market aggregators and places like Zero and so forth. But, um, but generally easy to obtain. On the property side, it's, uh, it's much harder. So that's um, where things like web scraping come into play, you know, like, and that's, I kind of do urge people to always speak to their internet attorney about that and like kind of be cautious as to how much <laughs> they can do it. And in, yeah, what, what applications and what uh, magnitude of kind of their actions and so forth. Uh, but this is definitely, you know, like, with the rise of the internet, like collecting data on the internet is extremely valuable. And so it's just like the mindset where if you take, for example, if we take commercial multifamily, one can use rental, I'm just giving like a quick example, one can use rental listings data to derive insights into which uh, specific buildings have a uh, value add. And if you do that, it's off market, it's perfectly off market. So, so for example, I do kind of my own prospect now, call it quote unquote. So let's say I would pull like various you know, rental listings data, and there are a few vendors also who offer that. And so, and use that to derive insights into which buildings have like more value add. And it goes pretty far actually from rental listings data, besides like just see for answer below market, one can go as far as are other income components, like are they charging sufficient fees compared to other buildings in the immediate neighborhood, which is, can be pretty valuable, like pet fees, administrative fees, et cetera. So are there other income components optimized? And then even like expenses, like which utilities they're charging and compared to like other similar properties in the area. 
And, and that kind of approach gives you in essence like um, a preliminary income expense analysis of the, that property based on its rental listings where you sort of, that's very preliminary. It's not the real underwriting of course, but nevertheless, you can scale it to thousands and thousands of commercial properties that are off market. And so you can have your, you know, be direct marketing campaigns more, you know, broader and kind of like more um, tuned to actual value add. And you can have them across like multiple regions. You can have them, let's say like if I do like my direct marketing campaign, it's like in 200 different counties, you know, I'm pretty agnostic to the specific area one because then and then i look at like all their market parameters and sort of have a sense of and think that i understand them and and so and so this gives you kind of a broader reach and kind of like a more data driven approach and that's an example on the commercial side and then on the residential side there's like various other things as far as automated underwriting uh at my company like another thing that we've been, i've been working on releasing is condition scoring for properties it's done on the images side it's also very useful to do it textually to have like thousands of descriptions that instead of your analyst underwriting them, you can actually have like, a, you know, like a machine learning algorithm, just score them out. So that is, um, you know, like automated underwriting is a useful thing. So, so various techniques for just like kind of underwriting properties at scale. And then one still needs to perhaps pass them to like your acquisitions analyst or something like that in the end, but it's, um, it just helps scale the process and makes the process better. Okay. Okay. So one of the things I really wonder about here is, you know, it was somewhat recently, or maybe it was the end of last year, I forget the exact timeline, but, you know, Zillow got into this business and let's face it, Zillow has a ton of data and they have a lot of people working there that are, you know, fantastic data engineers, I'm sure. And, you know, computer scientists and all of that. And it's no secret that, they failed spectacularly. It, it did not work out. They lost a lot of money and they got out of that business. So, I mean, what do you think they did wrong? If anything, do you have any, any thoughts about that and you know, what we can learn from their experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, so that's a question on like automated valuation models essentially, right? And I, I do build like my own AVM to be honest, like uh, when I've been investing in residential deals and I had like, I wrote my own AVM and I thought, okay, I can, I can use it to find inefficiency in the market in some extreme scenarios. Like if deals are, for example, in very liquid markets like upstate New York, if, if deals are like really mispriced and it happens to be the case sometimes. And so running like this kind of flat out, like automated valuation, like kind of like zero's estimate kind of thing, right? Can be a little bit useful to give you scale to that. But I mean, it's tricky. I looked into it a little bit. I don't know what drove. It seems like it's perhaps likely human decisions and not like so much about the algorithms themselves. It's sort of their, <laughs> managers, their management's business decisions, more likely, right? But um, because at the same time, simultaneously, I was I looked at the profit and loss of Open Door, and they were they continued being quite profitable. So it's quite interesting. While Zero reported like massive losses, and it's also the field that specific field is you know okay that's. It's not like about the technology of AVM itself that's used in the lending industry and various other industries, but that specific field of eye buying is, you know, a little bit politicized and, you know, there's like this perspective of where, you know, you're preventing home buyers from kind of like by bidding up too high prices and all that. And like, and many people don't like it and, and that's, so, so it's very tricky. I, I was even curious if that's partly what motivated their decision, but they did report big losses as well, which is extremely surprising. Uh, you know, in comparison to their competitors, so to say. 
So, so I don't know what happened there specifically, but, but of course, like, it's always, it's not like technology is not to be used. I mean, in a way that you, it prevents human decisions or something, <laughs> it's just a supplementary thing and kind of helps you scale to an extent. But I mean, at some point, if you don't care what prices you pay for those homes or something, and you're like paying too high prices or, you know, obviously that could result in losses. So yeah, it, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay. Let's dive into market level analysis and, you know, things, specific things that you look at. I especially appreciate the the warning to be careful about how you scrape data from various websites and the legality of doing so. Great warning. But, you know, let's talk about a market level analysis, things that you look for. And then I know you have some opinions about markets that you know may be overvalued today so let's uh dive into that yeah absolutely so so let's say how if you look at like an investment manager or investor and like how they pick markets like real estate like super hyper woke in a way right and and like i've heard arguments for okay because real estate is so woke oh we should sort of ignore like data that is at the state level or the county level or the city level even because it's hyper woke it's only about your exact neighborhood what's going to happen there well, sort of yes and no, because if we take like a hyper-localized hyper region, you know, it's um, on one side, yeah, it's a very important portion of your variance is going to come from there. But simultaneously, it's going to be exactly the portion that you are not able to predict. So it's hard to predict. So, the, so it's like you have a higher return at guessing like a really hot neighborhood or something like that. But the probability of you guessing it is also lower. And so is your expected value of your enterprise of trying to predict hot neighborhoods better at the, at the zip code level, at the neighborhood level, at the county level, at the state even level is not obvious. Because if you take something like states, they're extremely easy to predict in various, various ways, especially with regards to downside risk. And I'm going to talk about that. And then if you take something like a very hyper-focused specific mar uh, market, you know, like people can move out of there and you just cannot predict anything as to what's going on. And, and so that's an interesting perspective. So if we take like, a, for example, a multifamily syndicator and they pick a market and they say that's Atlanta, Georgia, and, uh, and they kind of, I feel like they often, they would pick like some of the strong trendy markets that have been observed by job growth, population growth, et cetera, to be strong. But kind of once they pick it, then they sort of back reason, you know, like all the parameters by which that market is strong. And what I think is the best approach, and like in some of the deficiency to that, actually, and what is, I think is a better approach in, on predicting appreciation is even to look at the price time series alone. So I did a study where I took population growth, housing supply, and uh, income. And I took it like for various markets and, and predicting trying to predict the prices for, I took all the historical data for like 40 years or something for, you know, like until 2017 and okay, predict the prices for two years ahead. So just kind of a forecast, you know, and forecasts, these forecasts are kind of weak because it's just like up to the trend continuing. And then once the trend breaks, then it breaks as well, right? Mm -hmm. But let's say assuming we're under the same market cycle and the same trend and so forth, it actually gave an error when just looking at the prices and it took it for states, it gave an error of only 1.2% oh, wow. of the true prices for yeah, in, in each of roughly in each of the two years. So it's like very close. And these are different. There's different. There's Facebook profit is one model for like kind of like time series modeling. And there is seasonal ARIMA is another model. And what is it? 
ETS, exponential triple smoothing is another. So, so these are the three main probably approaches like forecasting, you know, price time series. And it's, it's tricky and there's like all kinds of caveats, you know, the data needs to, you need to kind of like difference the data and so on and so forth. And, you know, there's like some kind of caveats to it, but overall, like the, the error was very small. And then I did what I would call kind of like the syndicator approach. I took the parameters of growth that are the fundamentals, which is the, you know, the income growth, population, housing supply, you know, like things like that. And I tried to predict those. So let's say, what's, how is the population, the population time series predicted itself and the other time series predict themselves. And then off that to predict the prices. And guess what? The error was five times bigger. Hmm. So that was, uh, well, sorry, 1.4% was the first one. And that was 7%. So five times bigger error or actually working at the fundamentals, which is essentially like the approach of the way any real estate investor picks, picks a market. And there can be different reasons to that. It's just one of the reasons prices are driven by fundamentals, but they could deviate, you know, they, there could be noise. There could be kind of even a, you know, like hype or bubble formation and things like that. And so there's more incorporated into the price than there are in those fundamentals. And also some of those like population growth, they're very hard, hard to predict in the future. So if you have already, if you look up like the, the, those metrics for a given market, well, they're lagging. They're already, it's already built into the price. It's already reflected in the price. And probably you're better off by just looking at the price time series to predict the future. And so that was like, so under a normal trend, like was like 2018, 2019, for example, and even 2020, like the, it was like very good prediction actually on the prices. And then like the same thing in 2021, it kind of fell through. And so that's, I want to talk about sort of the, the, the aspect of downside risk. So like, so how I pick markets. So one, I look at the fundamentals on the side, but I actually pick them on purely the price time series alone, as far as if I want to predict appreciation. And then on the downside risk, so that's one thing I, I feel like has been um, very useful. Like in many people have been reaching to me in the industry about it, which is market variations. So it's, I haven't invented it. It's, it's been done in the past, but what I did is I calibrated to the global financial crisis drops, price declines, and I showed what has actually been most predictive of the price declines. And so in high, in like high level discussion, uh, like a metric that is, has been, was very predictive of the declines post the global financial crisis were affordability deviations on the COVID like moving average window. So let's say like uh, you just like take the history of affordability over like, let's say 20 years back, and it keeps changing, shifting, shifting over every quarter of the window. And if you take like deviation from this kind of historical levels, this extremely simple thing was highly, highly predictive of the crashes actually at the, that time. It's quite interesting because, so why is that? So I was looking at it and, and at the time there was like a guy, his name is Ingo Windsor in Massachusetts. He is the founder of Local Market Monitor. Local Market Monitor is a, is a vendor, I believe, Neil Bawa uses for his market selection. And so, uh, so what, Ingo Windsor, so he's been like, you know, publishing data like for a long time in the industry. And so he was on CNN in 2005, 2006. And he was like talking that certain markets in California for it are dangerously overvalued. And all he was doing was kind of like price income ratios, you know, price income ratio, like affordability deviations. And he was correct. And he, uh, he was correct. And about the specific markets, there were others that were not overvalued at all. And I can, I can go into that as well. And then like in finance, there is a, um, another thing that inspired me at the time like to do this study. In finance, there is a hedge fund called Hussman Investment Trust. So John Hussman, Hussman is an economist or like 
well, never mind, PhD in finance, he's actually, I think. So he has like a, he has like a few, he tracks like a few metrics for how well they measuring the bubble, he calls it in finance. These topics are not popular in finance, by the way, because in finance, you know, you want to, I mean, obviously the whole mutual fund is, uh, industry depends on continuity and not arguing for, <laughs> for at some point things falling apart, you know? So there's like also this perspective. But, um, but again, um, like, so that's like, those are like interesting studies from finance that inspired me. So uh, essentially the methodologies, if you have the fundamentals that drive real estate, which are arguably income population and housing supply, and the premise is like real estate is a very fundamental asset, call it. It's not like something like technology stocks or something like that, like Tesla or whatever. It's hard to know what the price should be. And so because it's so fundamental, it's pretty easy to detect if it enters like kind of bubble territory and things deviate from those fundamentals. And the simplest approach is the one that I mentioned with just like affordability, price, income ratio. Then you can go like deeper. I've done it like with different methodologies with like more like regressions against population and housing supply as well. Or one can scale pricing, one can scale affordability by housing shortage. This is an interesting approach because housing shortage is like population housing supply ratios. They tend to be like around two, like 175 to 225 kind of range. And so one can actually just scale his price income ratio by this sort of around two number. And this is like another like simple metric that one can use for COVID, like measuring that. And yeah, and so what was the result of this? Like during the global financial crisis, the result was that if we take, for example, states, the degree to which they were overvalued in affordability terms at at their respective peak, that was a different date in every single state, was and, and the subsequent drops in each of those states that were um, that actually happened over a period of four years. So that's kind of like bleeding out gradually over four years until it reaches the bottom. And actually four years and one quarter was like the average drop at the time. And so this bleeding out to, to the, the, the bottom level, the magnitude of that drop and how much they were overvalued, the correlation of the two was 85%. And then I, at the county level, which is like, like 2000, I did the stuff like 2,700 counties, then the correlation drops. It's harder to predict counties. So now it's 75%. And then if you go to, you know, I, I didn't put the time myself. If you go to like zip code or something like that, ZCTA, COVID, you know, then I'm sure the predictive part is going to drop maybe in the 60s or, or even less uh, percent. But there is a strong positive correlation. It's quite interesting because I thought that's kind of a real finding because in a way, you know, if you think about it, this is not like a shock, like a sharp decline in the prices. They actually kind of were bleeding out over a period of four years to what seems to be to come back to their fundamental, their market fundamentals. And so, so I think like that's a very, if you take like something like population, try to correlate population growth alone to, to price appreciation. Correlation is 40% positive. So it's a positive, decent correlation, but it's not super strong. Now, if you add more variables like income and so forth, then it gets like very strong, right? But again, like having like a correlation of, you know, like 70 something or 80 something percent positive on a, that is predictive of the future in a sense, right? It's actually like very, very high. And so I thought like that's kind of like the conclusion is, well, and just like for other people as well, if they want to like do like some of those studies from their end, I thought the conclusion is, well, real estate is a fundamental asset. It's not like the stocks. We should kind of throw this idea that it's extremely hard to predict anything in real estate and that's like random stochastic prices or something. <laughs> they are, but no, they, they are, but they are driven by real, real stuff like housing, population, 
you know, income and this real stuff, you can know where it is. You don't need to have like guesswork for like worrying all the time uh, if the market is overvalued. And that's exactly how I did the study actually at the beginning of COVID. And I was exactly, I was worried like, what if my markets are overvalued? What am I, what am I going to do? You know, like where should I invest and so forth? Yeah, and it's actually interesting that, so the overvalued markets back then, and I'm going to mention like what I see at the current time as well, but the overvalued markets that back then that dropped the most, those were, well, the markets that dropped the most were California, Arizona, Nevada, and not markets, excuse me, states. And I mean, one can extend it to markets, obviously, but, but the states were California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. And they were like, they dropped like 40, 50%. I think like in Nevada, it was like 56%, the... The, the drop and um, and so and they were like overvalued in a similar range they were like 40 to 60 percent above their like historical affordability levels and on the contrary it's very interesting to see that there were like states at the time like for example even Texas that is extremely booming after this was undervalued at the, at the time and so Texas was like five percent undervalued and there were 10 states that were undervalued and the average drop in all those states 10 states was only 4%. It's actually crazy. It's actually in North Dakota, the drop was zero. <laughs> Prices didn't drop at all. So it's like really crazy because North Dakota was dramatically, dramatically undervalued. And so, and so they, that they totally gave me insight. Okay, real estate is like very fundamental. If you have markets that are actually undervalued, even if you have the biggest recorded crash in US real estate history, they're not going to drop. And that's actually what happens because like a 4% drop, actually 4% was the, the median income drop in the US at the time. So you can say like, if you take price income terms, right, it becomes that, you know, in valuation COVID terms, they didn't drop. It's kind of, they stayed the same. It's just, they dropped by income. And, and that's, um, and that was quite interesting. And so, so that was like, uh, so that was like that study. And then like um, one can compute, like one can keep tracking, a call it like market valuations, if you will. And like one can keep tracking it quarterly for, uh, you know, like across time. And uh, so, so some of these studies are published, like one place that they get published also is, I mean, they're published in my company as well. So I, I do it as well, like Realty Quant. But also I've seen like studies for countries by Bloomberg Economics. So Bloomberg Economics does a study like by Niraj Shah is the person who, that, who, who publishes it. And um, so they were showing until 2019 and then until the beginning of 2021, we're showing US real estate is fairly valued. That's correct. Hmm. And I was like looking at like exactly, I was had the same uh, measures. And like I said, I started this at the beginning of COVID and I was talking like at different events and I was like saying US real estate is fairly valued. On the contrary, there were other countries real estate like Canada New Zealand, Australia, countries in Scandinavia, and to some extent, the United Kingdom that were actually very overvalued. But the US real estate was like rather than 100% or something, it was like super fairly valued. Hmm. And so that's like very interesting. And I, that started to change. And, and just and, and just one moment, like the only thing that actually, the only state that I would say was sharply overvalued at the time was Idaho. So Idaho was like 25% overvalued already, even though the rest of the US was like fairly valued and even undervalued. And then some of the very well-performing states like Florida and Texas, they were at like eight to 10% overvalued, but really very mild, like eight to 10% over a period of four years. And what happened in 2021 with inflation that we've all been hearing about is that, well, inflation is good for hard assets. It helps hard assets appreciate, but 
it will also simultaneously, so it's gonna lead, raise your appreciation at the time, but it will also simultaneously drive your asset or your market that you're in overvalued at some point, and you will simultaneously with this amazing appreciation be carrying downside risk at the same time. Yeah, and so in 2021, so like, so it kept, like I said, like from beginning, just give like a chronology from beginning, I keep tracking quarterly like these metrics, fairly valued, fairly valued, fairly valued like this. And like Texas, eight to 10%. And suddenly we're like in the second quarter and third quarter of, of 2021, and these metrics doubled. So they kind of suddenly doubled. So that's like one thing. And then I wrote, like I did a video for, uh, for my webinar where I said, okay, this is, it doesn't mean it's too alarming, you know, not like to worry people too much, but it's kind of first indication of entering like a market bubble where, okay, you have historical levels of valuations that have been, okay, Ford and Texas at the same normalized valuation level, not same price level, but actual valuation level, same levels for four years. And suddenly you have like kind of spike to a new regime to like 17, 18%. Yeah, and some of the Western markets like Idaho, which was a 25% jump to like 47%. Wow. And um, right. And so, and others, so others like Arizona, Nevada, uh, Utah, I guess Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, and Colorado, kind of like in the most, uh, kind of the most uh, overvalued range at the time. And that can be seen like very easily by even looking at just prices and incomes. So in Arizona, like in the first half of, we all heard about the amazing rent growth that happened, you know, like some of the, in some of the Arizona markets. And so prices in Arizona in the first half of 2021, they increased by 17% statewide. So, and the income growth was only 1%. And so that is kind of like where, you know, some of that starts to transpire. And so again, and then like, it's quite interesting. Like when they say like some of these things and people say like, well, are you bearish on those markets? No. I'm not. I'm actually the most bullish. I run like appreciation forecasts. And so what is the market that has the highest appreciation forecast in my model? Boise, Idaho. So Boise, Idaho, you know, like if also like people have listened, because I know you mentioned you've had like Neil Bao on this, on this forum. So if people have listened to him, like he shares like, what's the best performing market this, um, this cycle? It's Boise, Idaho. And, and it's true. It's actually quite easy to see. Uh, you need to have kind of like the fairly valued starting point for your, you know, for like the time horizon that you measure it. But then you, it's easy to say, okay, boy, so that's like clearly like the highest appreciation across like 800 US cities. And so what is the best appreciation forecast for this year or next year, assuming we stay under the same cycle? Well, it's again, boy, and it's places like Phoenix, it's places like, uh, you know, even Salt Lake City or even, even Las Vegas and so forth you know, like all the Western markets or, or certain markets in Texas and, and Florida. So that should come as no surprise. But what I kind of want to caution like investors that simultaneously, what is the highest downside risk at the moment in the, that would resolve the, the moment the market risk, a markets, the market cycle ends, which could be at an undefined time, four years from now, one year from now, we never know. It's again, Boise, Idaho. So, it's, so it has the highest appreciation forecast but it's also the biggest downside risk. So it becomes like this kind of measure, you know, risk management of you know, what, where you want to invest. So for example, if one invests in the Midwest and the, and the North, if one invests in the Northeast where it's depressed, well, it is depressed, you're gonna get little appreciation. But on the other hand, and, I'm not, and there's various, you know, obviously like policy reasons that that's not recommended and so forth. But purely from a market standpoint, it's not gonna carry a downside risk 
this cycle just because those markets are now undervalued. It will take places you know, like New Jersey, and I'm not suggesting to invest in New Jersey by any means. I'm actually, I've been living in New Jersey for four and a half years and now back to New York City myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not suggesting that by any means, but, um, but all I'm saying is it happens to be an undervalued state right now. So last week, at least based on you know, the history, at least based on like, say, like during the global financial crisis, what happened is undervalued states, and if you're in an undervalued county, in an undervalued state, your market is pretty much not going to drop. You know, it can drop like 4%, like discussed by income or whatever, but it's going to be like pretty mild. So that's an interesting perspective. So it then just becomes a question of like, do people in picking their markets, do they want to pick now the highest appreciation? And that's a question the same way for myself in my market selection. Do I want to go in 40 day even? And they're 17% overvalued, not super much, not a bubble yet, you know, like 17% where I do want to go there. And Florida has like incredible autocorrelation, very big trend. Like prices continue the same way they did before. And that's like established like over four to five years. So it's like a very trend market. Not, not all markets are like that. For example, something like Alaska has negative autocorrelation. So like last year performance doesn't predict this year. It's actually opposite. So it's kind of doesn't, there doesn't, there's no rhyme or reason. But in Florida, they've had like last year did well. This year is going to do well to like, I think 77% correlation or something like that. It's quite interesting. And so, so that's like being, okay, it's a trend, trend. I mean, and then of course, every market within it is different and that's understandable, but just, um, just like high level discussion. And so like, they want to invest there, pick up the trend, pick up like some high appreciation. Timing then is unknown as to when the market cycle ends and like, what's my downside risk that I carry simultaneously. So this, this kind of the approach. And, um, you know, like I can go on a, like some cities and so forth. Like I said, I have this for like, 2,700 U.S. counties. So there's like a bunch of cities sort of like proxy <laughs> around that as to, you know, like what are over undervalued and or like well-performing still undervalued and things like that. But this is the general methodology and approach. And it just things are more complicated. And like to say, like when people say, okay, inflation is good for you. Yeah, sure. But it also raises your downside risk in this case, unless really all the fundamentals catch up with that. Like housing supply develops accordingly, you know, incomes grow accordingly and all that. If that's the case, then you would be perfectly matched. And that's completely possible because actually one example at the beginning of COVID, and I know, I know we're probably running out of time, but one example in Denver, Colorado was a market that was like top five city really in the, in the country, like, you know, really up there with Boise and, and Phoenix and, and so forth. And so Denver was actually fairly valued at the beginning of COVID. And now it's, you know, it believes maybe like 12%, it believes like it's valuation or 12% or something. So it's actually relatively mild. But again, that's like a market that extremely boomed. If I was living in Denver, I would think it's so expensive. Prices have doubled or whatever, like over a relatively short period of time. But actually it was consistent with its fundamentals. And then one can look at like other, like, let's say moderately, like decently performing places, sort of places like Indiana. It's like the state of Indiana. Okay, like some, it has performed, it's not depressed. It's not like the Northeast it has performed well, but until at least by the beginning of COVID, it was actually still undervalued. And now it's kind of fairly valued at the, at the current time. And so then, like I said, it's just this risk management. Do you want to invest in something undervalued that's going to appreciate very little? but we will also have like very little downside risk or you want to invest in like a fairly valued market carries some downside risk, you know, like you manage, get some appreciation as well, or even you can invest in an overvalued market and have a two-year project or something like this. And just like be aware of like your, uh, your downside risk to that. 
And, and these are the questions. But what I kind of, again, like to, to reiterate, like I try to draw people's attention is market valuation in real estate is something you can approximately know, not in a perfect way, but to 70, 80% correlation. And we know this is kind of a private equity market where we invest and we try to make alpha call it, like make like a market, beat the market, call it like do better, like find like properties that are a quote unquote a deal. And we are able to do this in real estate because we know the valuation of those properties. We know it by simply appraisals. We know it by even automated valuation in some case to lesser accuracy. And we are able to find deals at the property level. But also in addition to that, it's a further like why I kind of I feel like I love real estate myself coming out of finance where there's so little opportunities in comparison, is that in addition, on the market side, we know valuation. I don't know where, I, at the moment, for example, I don't own any stocks at all because I don't, I don't know the market valuation of the techno, technology big five tech companies that are driving the, the S&P 500, for example, right? So, so I kind of, I don't know the valuation of the stock market. Is it overvalued? Yeah, I feel like it's a bubble. I feel like it's overvalued the stock market. You know, it's got appreciated way, way too much, but I may be completely wrong. I actually thought that prices are high you know, at the beginning of 2020, and then they went like way higher. So this kind of, you know, approach makes it, you know, like not very, not like a very professional investor approach on the market side there. And so that's why I'm a weak stock investor as a result, just because I don't have this, um, you know, this kind of know-how. And in real estate, it's easy to have, it's easy to do. You know, you can hire analysts like follow like some of the methodology they can reach to me if they have any questions as well how to do it. We also like, uh, like my company also publishes the data. They can also, if they want, they can use that as well. And um, yeah. Nice. Well, I appreciate the data-driven approach. It's certainly complicated, but you're drawing fairly uh, high-level conclusions and reaching, you know, uh, some uh, a degree of certainty in the analysis. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties, not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, I've got three rapid fire questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Great question. 
best investment other than education. So that would be, well, uh, that's the best real estate investment I made. Uh, so property upstate, it had like, was like a four unit, well, in relative terms, in percentage terms only, not in absolute terms. So a property upstate, I like was a residential property, had a fifth unit. I just added like fire smoke alarms in the fifth unit, made the unit legal and it doubled its valuation. Nice. Nice. I like that. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment I ever made is at the moment investing in a property for condominium conversion in New Jersey by New York City and dealing with a town that is <laughs> uh, that is essentially <laughs> essentially socialist in character and like extremely extremely difficult uh, in their rules and you know extremely challenging like to just like uh, match their rules and also match to their uh, political incentives wow that's unfortunate my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing most important lesson is to always add value and always do things your own way and in a better way than what you're currently seeing. Just trying to do it like a little bit better, one idea better, one step nice. ahead. Nice. I like that. Well, Stefan, thank you for joining us today, sharing all these lessons. I love the data-driven approach and that you're really emphasizing the importance of the fundamentals when it comes to real estate valuation, at least at the state level. If mm -hmm. folks want to reach out, if they want to learn more, if they want to track you down on the internet or learn more about your company and what you have to offer, where can they find you? Yeah. So the best way is my website, riotikwan.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.